Welcome to the Pi Sigma Epsilon podcast, where we bring you a business advantage for life in the time that it takes to walk to class or drive to work. My name is Kristen Pearson. I'm the Director of Member Services at the Pi Sigma Epsilon National Headquarters. And I'm Daniel Schultz, the Collegiate Vice President of PSC and the President of the Epsilon Epsilon Chapter at Ball State University. Pulling from his own personal struggles, missed opportunities, and career successes, Ken Coleman will help you discover what you were born to do and provide practical steps to make your dream job a reality. Ken is the number one national best-selling author of The Proximity Principle, the proven strategy that will lead to the career you love. He's also the author of One Question, Life-Changing Answers from Today's Leading Voices. At Ramsey Solutions, he hosts The Ken Coleman Show, a nationally syndicated radio show, part of the Ramsey Network, that airs in more than 35 cities across the U.S. every weekday. We are so excited to welcome Ken Coleman to our podcast today. So, Ken, we definitely want to talk about the many successes you've had with influencing people through various outlets like broadcasting, your book, and events that you're part of. First, dive into how and when did you start your broadcasting career and who's your target audience? Well, I started my broadcasting career uh, at the age of 31, and it was a high school football game. I was doing the play-by-play on the internet, so there were two people listening, the kid next to me, who was probably (laughs) half, you know, probably 19 years of age, 20 years of age, so not half my age. And uh, then my wife at home, because she's a good lady. That's where I first started, you know, and I think it's so fun to recall the early days, uh, because it's, it's those humble beginnings that that really steal our resolve to stay with it. Uh, my target uh, audience now is, is really anybody, uh, I think probably 18 to 58 is probably the target, but it could be 16 to 66. I've had 60 year olds call my show. And they're really, uh, they're really all in the same bucket. And that is that they know that there's something unique and specific they're supposed to give the world through their work contribution. Um, and they're not there yet. And so that, that would, that would bring everybody in, you know, cause everybody's in a different stage or situation. Uh, but they all are unified by that one desire to make a difference in their work. I appreciate you helping people find the way to achieve that and find the way to get to that. That's one of the things that we try to do here in Pi Sigma Epsilon is help people be prepared to achieve that, give them the tasks and the transferable skills to find that. But as we started our podcast, you obviously have much more time on the air and experience with that. Would you mind telling us uh, something that you've learned throughout your time hosting the Ken Coleman show or if it's broadcasting those sports games? What's something that you've learned? Well, I've learned so much. Um, what would I share today? I think um, what I have learned is there is an unexpected and powerful intimacy that happens uh, over the telephone that would not necessarily happen uh, in a face-to-face interaction. And so I'll break that down. So when somebody calls in my radio show, they're, they're almost always nervous uh, because they understand it's live. It's a national radio show, Sirius XM and national syndication. And that live element, they're nervous. You know, they would listen to me and they know that I'm, I'm a professional. And so there's this performance anxiety, I think, uh, that is obviously kind of hanging over everything else. And then they're going to talk about some things that are very intimate to them. We're talking about your work and whether or not you're happy in your life and your career. But what's interesting is, is because it's the telephone, and even though they're nervous, they're uh, more willing than I would have originally guessed when I got into radio 
how people are willing to just bear their soul uh, over the airwaves, but via the telephone. And I think that if I were to meet those same people and try to do that face-to-face in five minutes, uh, it would take longer for them to get comfortable with me because there's something about the face-to-face and I'm looking at you. That's an added pressure, someone looking into your soul. So I've just been really fascinated by the medium of a telephone call broadcast over the radio and how intimate uh, callers can get with me pretty quickly. And I think that's, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. It's a really fascinating question. I could go on and on and on about all the things I've learned. So it really depends, you know, are we talking about broadcasting tricks, communication tips? Uh, you know, I could go forever. That's one that, that I find to be really fascinating. That's why I love radio. That's, I love that. Um, so what's a question you wish people asked you more often and then how would you answer it? Mm. What's a question I wish people would ask me more often and how would I answer it? Um, I'm taking my time with this one because I really love a good question. A guy who built his career on interviewing, that is a really, I must tell you, and I'm not stalling. That's a great question. Appreciate it. I mean, like, because I'm, I don't Daniel wrote it. It's Daniel, let me tell you something. As a question connoisseur, that's a really good question because I don't have an answer. So let me get an answer though. Bear with me because this is what makes a great question, by the way, folks, is when you make somebody like me who I've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews where (laughs) someone's asked me questions and plus I've done thousands asking other people. It's really good. Um, I wish people would ask me. Why is fear so powerful? That's what I would like them to ask me. Because what ends up happening on the radio show every day is I help them identify their fears and I'll have them state the fear out loud and then I'll kind of break the fear down. So I'll kind of punch at fear, you know, and kind of uh, make fear look silly, not the caller. But it would be fun if somebody one time just called up and said, here's my fear and I need to know why is it so powerful? Hmm. Um, Because that would allow me to then go into that, which is um, fear is a liar. But, but fear has always got on the other end of it. So whatever the fear is, fear has a false result, right? So you're feeling that this could happen, right? And if this happens, this is the result. And the negativity is always a negative result, right? So I fear someone's going to um, think that I'm not good enough and therefore they're not going to give me the job, right? So that's, how, that's what I'm talking about. So you get this negative this negative thing that could happen. And then there's a result of this happening. So cause and effect is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, and so the reason that fear is so powerful is because it, it deals in the negative and the way our brains work. Uh, we are, we are creatures that were designed to protect ourselves. And so you all have probably heard this. If you haven't, you can go research this. It's called the lizard brain. And it's the way that people describe the part of our brain right back here. It's at the back of our skull uh, towards that area is where our brain is. And that is, there's a name for it, but it's, it's, it's basically a fight or flight, right? Mm, so mm. fear presents itself. Okay. So yeah, this could happen. And as a result, this bad thing is going to hurt me. We either fight or we take off. That's fight or flight. So if you think back to, uh, the Stone Age, right? You think uh, even colonial times, you know, when America is expanding. And so you got all these people heading out into uh, the, the, the frontier. And so you've got the threat of, of Indians, right? And you've got the threat of, 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 of wild animals, whatever it is, right? Any kind of threat, 
it's going to create one or two reactions. Uh, I'm going to fight or I'm going to take off. And so what happens is that's the way our brain is wired. And so when we uh, present or we are presented with fear and we allow that to kind of rest in our head, here's what happens in the first 90 seconds of us realizing uh, that something bad could happen. Our body releases a chemical reaction. And it takes us into that fight or flight. Well, back in the old days, you, you worried about enemies, just whoever it was, right? The stone age, right? Who knows? You know, they're fighting each other and here comes another tribe along this and caveman comes and hits you over the head because he wants to take your deer meat, whatever, right? That you needed that fight or flight survival. Mm -hmm. We don't need that as much anymore. And so we know that after 90 seconds, that chemical wears off. And so if you can, you can withhold from making a real decision uh, or even allowing a thought to stay in your mind for 90 seconds, you got a good chance. And what happens is we, we get hit with fears all the time. And we then take that fear and we treat it as a truth. We don't even, let, we don't even wait nine, 90 seconds. We wait. We're nine seconds in and we're like, no, no. And we've got this thought that we hang on to for the rest of our day, the rest of our week, the rest of our year. And that fear, which is a lie, becomes a thing that just sits there. So I'm getting into the science of this because I want people to understand there's some science behind this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the reason fear is so powerful is because it actually, your brain emits a, a chemical that puts you in that fight or flight stage. So you got to understand what you're dealing with. And so how do you, how do you fight that chemical? Sure. Well, don't, don't react. Don't let a thought settle. Don't take an action in that first 90 seconds. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Don't get out of the car and punch them in the nose. <laughs> you know, just don't do that. Right. I mean, we laugh at that as silly as it is, but how many times do we see someone get arrested or getting angry and gets, it gets in an altercation like these parents on these bleachers at these little league games. It's unbelievable. <laughs> right. And again, that's an attack. They feel attacked. Their kids attack. So now they're going to go punch the other parent, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> looking at you, dad. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Please wait 90 seconds and whatever you do, don't get in a fight at the little league game. It's not. Your, oh. Yeah. So you've had, you've had a few more than 90 seconds uh, to define your career path and get to where you are today. Uh, just knowing the inspiration and the message of the book that you have, I'm curious what your original career goals were back when you were in high school or college. Well, in high school and college, I wanted to be a United States senator who would eventually have the opportunity to maybe dip my toe in the water and run for president. <laughs> that's, that's, wow. a, that's absolutely what it was in, in high school and college. No question about it. <laughs> How do you feel that's about that now? Fun. No, no, no <laughs> desire to do that now at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I will tell you that, you know, when I, when I realized, because I, I went into politics and I was working for the governor of Virginia at 22. Mm -hmm. Well, I had some, some really early success and, and uh, then I got into the business community trying to build my business resume so that maybe I could run one day and have a real leadership resume. But without getting into all the reasons why, I just really soured on the political process. Mm -hmm. and, um, had to deal with what is going on here. I was so certain about this and, and all of a sudden just know what does it mean? And what I was able to do is make the connection to the why behind public service in the area of politics and see that I could be a public servant in the area of broadcasting. So I was able to figure that all out and just make a course correction, if you will, a, a trajectory change. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, so even though I didn't go that route, 
long term. Um, it certainly uh, it made sense at the time. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a perfect marriage like, between your passions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just not the area I want to be in. You know what I mean? I'm not interested in yelling at somebody. I'm not interested in somebody yelling at me. I'm not interested in somebody taking shots at me just because I believe something. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's gotten to be so ridiculous that I can believe one thing, you can believe another, and we can actually disagree, but we can we can disagree agreeably. But you can't in politics anymore. Now it's just like, this is no longer an exchange of ideas. It's just like this battlefield all the time. So, you know, it's still a worthy thing. And I still pay attention with popcorn in my lap, but that's as close as I get. <laughs> well, so bringing it back to the broadcasting career and then, you know, coming into the present, um, when did you decide that a book was going to be your next move? Yeah, that's a fun question too. You know, um, books should um, develop themselves. So The Proximity Principles is my second book. There was, uh, I released my first book, One Question, in 2013. And The Proximity Principle came out in 2013. Gee whiz, 19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, six year gap and the timing on both was, was perfect. And, and several circumstances led to that. Um, But I knew proximity principle was a book when the idea hit me in the car one day driving to the office. I had a young guy uh, like you two awesome youngsters that wanted me to be on his podcast. And I say yes to everything because a lot of people said yes to me early on. And so um, I, I just try to say yes to everything. And so I was looking at the interview questions that he had sent. And um, I don't like to really prepare for an interview because I'm in my content every day. So I like to be fresh and real and authentic. But I was just glancing at the interview and the last question got my attention. And he, he said, what's the one thing that you would point to that led to your success in broadcasting. And I, I kind of scoffed at it. I had a bad attitude about it because I thought it was a bad question. And then I got over myself and uh, I'm sitting at a stoplight. I'll never forget it. And I said, okay, answer this question. You know what he's asking. What's a big thing? And um, I was sitting there and I said, you know, I was just really good about getting around the right people and in the right places. That, that's what I figured out. I was really good at meeting the right people and then having them tell me who are some other right people to get around. And then what are the places I need to get in if I'm going to get in this broadcasting game so that I can learn some things, do some things, and keep connecting. So so the light turned green, and I'm starting to drive, okay? And I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty good. I like that. You know, and I'm, I'm, by this point, I have a daily radio show. So I'm one of these guys that um, I see content in the grocery store. I see content at my kid's basketball game. I see content in the gym. I see content everywhere. And so I'm, I'm thinking, boy, I really like this. They're the right people host the right places. There's a formula there. Right. And so I get to another stop, like two miles down the road. And, um, and, and I, and I, I pull out my phone and I go, this is all about proximity. It's proximity. That's, that's the secret. It's the secret sauce proximity, to the right people. In the right place. So now I'm like really, really getting fired up. And so I grabbed my phone, I hit the memo, audio memo, and I said, it's the proximity principle. The proximity principle says, in order to do what you want to do, you got to be around people that are doing it and in places where it is happening. And I hit stop. And I played it back three more times before I got to the office. I went, I think this was really good. 
So I went in, told a couple of people at the office, said, listen to this. Is this cheesy or is this good? They're like, it's good. I shared it on the radio show that day. And subsequently, whenever it was relevant, uh, I started teaching it on the show. And it took off. People started talking about it and calling back saying, Ken, I'm practicing the proximity principle. And that's when we knew there was a book there. Hmm. Well, that, uh, that's a great story that you have there. It's an amazing way to start a book. I'm glad to hear your passion about it. And you've kind of preempted our next question is for the people that may not have heard about your book. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the radio show. I heard, I heard about your book before it was released on the Dave Ramsey podcast. Right. Uh, and you were shouting it out there. Could you tell some people who may not have heard about it just a little bit deeper what the proximity yeah. principle is? Well, I just shared what the principle is. And so what we right. did in the book is we identified five archetypes of people and five archetype places. And what I did is I went back into my journey and I said, who are the types of people that really made a difference in my journey? They told me what I needed to know. They showed me how to do it. They made connections for me. They encouraged me. So who are those people? And so I went to a coffee shop one day and I just, I sat there and I thought through it and the five people just jumped right out of my brain onto the page. And so the five people in the book are uh, the producer. This is a person who is successful in the field or the job, the role, the craft that you want to go in. Like they're, they, they're winning. Okay. The professional is the person who is at the top of the industry. Okay. And they're hard to get at. So in my world, broadcasting, that was Larry King, you know, and, and uh, you know, we're talking broadcasters like Bob Costas and people that I emulated. So they're at the top of the field. Could I get to them? Yeah, it's possible, but very, very difficult, but I can learn from them from afar because their work is published. Right. So you could go on and watch a, uh, a world-class expert on YouTube, uh, read their books or uh, take their online courses. You guys get the point. So the professionals at the top of your industry and you can learn from them from afar, even though you can't sit with them and have coffee. Then you got the professor. Now the professor does not necessarily mean an actual college professor or, or, you know, the educational environment, although it certainly can, but the professor is defined by one thing. They actually are in the business of teaching your craft or teaching parts of your craft, the skill set that you need. And not only do they teach it, they really enjoy it. So you want to get around people like that who can teach you what to do and they enjoy teaching it because they're going to be a really good teacher. Mm -hmm. And then you got the peer. Um, we know from research uh, from Harvard that 95% of your success or failure is directly related to the people you spend the most time with. In other words, you are the average of the people you hang out with the most, the most time spent with those people is affecting you. And so uh, you need to have the right peers. And then we, then we talk about the mentor. Everybody needs that sage, that older woman or older man in your life who doesn't necessarily have to be in the same field, but they've been successful in their life and, and ideally successful in a lot of areas. So have a relationship mentor, a marriage mentor, a parenting mentor, a professional business mentor. And they're there for two reasons. Number one, they've got tremendous wisdom. And they've also got a heart for you. They care for you. So they're going to be a truth teller in your life and hold you accountable. So that's an example of the five people, uh, the five places I'll roll through real quick. That's where you are. Most people think you got to, to move somewhere to go somewhere and, and where you are right now, you can actually start. Uh, then you've got to get in a place to learn. And this is all about getting qualified. Then you got to get in a place to practice where there's a low risk or no risk at all. And you're just practicing the craft and beginning to, uh, to get, to get experience. Um, and then a uh, place to perform. That's now we're getting paid for this. We got some pressure on us 
and then finally a place to grow. You always want to get yourself in a place where there's a ladder for you, where if you do a really good job, you're going to get an opportunity to get promoted and move up. And so that's a quick review of the two major sections of the book. Mm-hmm. The last section of the book is all about practices. So people, places, practices. You can tell I love alliteration, uh, but in the back half, we talk about very practical things so that when you're around the right people and in the right places, you maximize those opportunities. And that's what the book really is about. Um, this is a book that's going to teach you uh, how to get opportunity because when you're in the right places and around the right people, opportunity finds you. You're never going to be sitting around going, I just can't catch a break. I promise. <laughs> Um, I just finished your book um, oh, last night and it's wonderful and I love thank it. And I'm going to, it's fantastic. Thank but you. I had a question in the back of my mind the entire yeah. time I was reading it. I was wondering with the reliance we have on online with online communication these days yeah. and that's great for accessibility. Can the proximity principle work in a completely virtual way? You had mentioned sure. that the, you know, that person at the top, that's definitely where you're going to be able to connect with them first. But the people and the places that you want to connect to, can that all be online? Sure. It can be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't recommend that. I don't recommend <laughs> that you, you never have any human connection. There's just something about being across from somebody at times. However, I understand what you're asking. And it's a really, really thoughtful question. And absolutely. I mean, think about it. Um, you could reach out to somebody who is a world-class performer in your field and you can get a response from that on social media and the mm-hmm. entire it could give you one nugget of advice uh, via DM that really, really helps you. So absolutely, to your point, remember, when I say proximity, I say get around the right people in the right places, all you're doing is introducing a digital environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, if I'm following them on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, and I'm, I'm engaging in their webinars and I'm learning from them because I was one of 200 people to get in the webinar, that's, that's proximity. Uh, proximity, reaching out on social or communicating via email if they're not, if, if you can't get to them in person. Uh, so yes, absolutely proximity has a digital or virtual uh, component to it. Because remember, what is it about? It's just being able to observe, yeah, and emulate. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Get the right information, the right perspective, the right observation. That's what, that's what proximity does. Yeah. So my personal introduction to you, Ken, was um, finding the Entree Leadership podcast a while ago. And oh, then cool. I was able to attend an Entree Leadership event in, in the seat of someone else that wasn't able to go and oh, they offered me the awesome. ticket. So it was pretty cool. Um, and so you were the host there and yep. it was part of a training from Dave Ramsey. And yep. pe- many people might recognize the name Dave Ramsey from yep. the Total Money Makeover um, and Financial Peace University. Um, but these days, when it comes to those events, there's quite a few different events that you're a part of. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about them and then what you speak about? Yeah. Well, with Entree Leadership, as you talk about, I was the host of the Entree Leadership podcast, which is one of the top leadership podcasts. Uh, I was the uh, host of that for five years. Just recently passed it off to uh, young Alex, who's just doing an incredible job. Uh, and so we, that was a very intentional pass off so that I could focus on on what I'm doing here at Ramsey Solutions, which is helping people find work they were created to do. On the leadership side, um, you know, with Entree Leadership, um, I speak to leaders through the lens of I'm talking to the American worker every day, you know, every day I'm dealing with people who aren't happy at work. And so I hear a lot of things about the workplace and culture and things like that. And then of course, you know, I follow great leaders like, you know, Dave Ramsey and John Maxwell working with both of those men 
and uh, being a part of the Entree Leadership brand, I know the content. So for instance, we'll have the Entree Leadership Summit, which is our flagship event in Orlando this spring, and I'm going to be speaking on the leadership sweet spot. Well, that's all about helping leaders identify what their blind spots are and get in their sweet spot. And the leadership sweet spot is simply this. Hey, leaders, what do you do best? What do you do better than anything else? All right. That's what you need to be using to do the work that you love to create the results that matter most to you. So here's the deal. Stop doing stuff that you suck at. Okay. Like stop because your team knows you suck, but you have delegation control problems because you don't trust your team or whatever it is, or you're a control freak. Okay. And so there's certain work that you as a person, as a leader really love to do. Only do that in the office. Get somebody else to do the stuff that sucks the life out of you. And then obviously, what are the results that fire you up the most in your organization? Well, that, that leader, that's what you need to be doing. So that's what we're going to teach on. So that's an example. I also do the intentional interview talk at the Entree Leadership Master Series, uh, which is a different event. That's all about taking my years and years of doing interviews with high profile guests. And I take my preparation process for writing the interview and then my performance process, how I conduct my interviews in front of thousands of people live, right? Um, and I take that process and I teach it to leaders on how to do interviews to get candidates because we know the number one cause of turnover in America's corporations is bad interviews, bad hiring. You're not hiring the right person. And uh, so the interview is a big part of that. So that's an example of two of the entree events and what I teach. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of custom talks. I teach, uh, I just taught a bunch of leaders out in Oregon. I taught on um, the, uh, the characteristics of, 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 of championship teams, sorry. And so, I, you know, so I create a lot of content depending on what the need is of the client. But that's, that's what I'm doing in the entree leadership space. But outside of that, the smart conferences and anything else we do, I'm talking about the content of the Ken Coleman show which is you were created to fill a unique role. You were needed. You must do it. Well, how do you figure out what you were created to do? What do you do best? I just went through this. Mm -hmm. What do you love to do most and what results matter most? When you use that as a formula, you use what you do best. All right. So talent plus passion, what you love to do most plus mission results that you deeply care about. That's in your sweet spot. And the sweet spot analogy is so powerful for people because they understand that the sweet spot really is a sports metaphor based on a reality. When a racket or a baseball bat or a golf club mm -hmm. hits the ball in the sweet spot of that instrument, two things happen. Number one, it looks effortless. You're watching that and you're going, well, what a smooth swing and how in the world they hit it that far, that powerfully. Okay, so it looks and feels effortless to the person who hit the ball. You don't even feel the contact. The second thing that happens is maximum efficiency, meaning it goes, faster and farther. So it's the optimal performance. And so that's available to people in their work life so that they're not going to work on Mondays miserable. Yep. And I appreciate you mentioning that, especially with hitting that sweet spot. That's something that's ever present and should be ever present for our chapter members and the presidents, especially in the executive board as they're going through, they all have those weaknesses and it's important for them to balance off each other and find those sweet spots to become the most yes. productive they can. Um, I know that we're coming up on the time that we have a lot of with you and we appreciate you uh, for taking that time on behalf sure. of all of Pi Sigma Epsilon. I, we certainly appreciate you making the time to do that and you saying yes to us so that then we can say yes to others down the line too. Uh, but just one of the questions that we ask that we have at the very end of our podcast that we've been able to ask all our members coincides with Pi Sigma Epsilon's motto. What would you say has been your business advantage for life? Uh, I would tell you that it's clarity. I have been fanatical about trying to remain clear 
about the big things in life. Where do I want to end up in my family life, my relationships with friends? Where do I want to be professionally? Where do I want to be spiritually? Um, I've always been a guy who's just naturally driven by, I want to leave it all on the field. I played sports when I was a kid, so please forgive the sports analogy. But when I'm done, whenever God takes me home, um, I want people to say about me, Coleman gave everything he had. And, um, and so because of that, I've always been really, um, as I said, fanatical or maniacal about being clear. What is it that I'm supposed to do? What's my contribution? And that's driven clarity in so many areas. And as a result of clarity, me always driving for clarity, um, clarity leads to unbelievable confidence. And confidence will fuel your courage when life throws the uncertain moments at you and you got to kind of face the unknown and keep trudging ahead. So you don't just show up one day and get courage. You can't will yourself into courage. At some point it comes down to one thing. I believe that I can do this or that I should do this. And that's when people step up in these crazy moments and rescue people, right? Mm -hmm. You think about it, let's take a decision, but what's happening in their brain? They're going, I believe I should do this. I don't know if I can lift this car off of this person, but I believe I should try, right? Or I believe I can do this, and so I'm going to go for it, even though I'm uncertain. I really believe I can pull this off, right? So that's that entrepreneur who pushes forward and says, I really believe this product's going to change the world, and they do it. So to me, I've just been really crazy focused on clarity, which breeds confidence, and confidence breeds courage. And I'd wrap all that into one thing. When you have those three C's, clarity, confidence, and courage, you have massive belief, massive belief and I'm just I'm just overflowing with belief so I, I think that's been my edge This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.